This evening, we are beginning our study once again of God himself, the person of God. And we have been studying his wonderful glory for three months. And now we want to study the heart of God, the passions, the affections, the feelings, the way his heart moves, or as it's written in the note, the motions of the heart, the divine seat of the affections. We have studied already his actions. We have studied his exalted glory. And our goal in this has been to know something of God. Today, I made a list of distinct attributes and I got well into the 30s of different attributes of God. I looked at a number of books comparing their lists. Most books do not even list 20. Stephen Charnock in The Existence and Attributes of God lists less than 10. But Charles Wesley, as we mentioned last week, famously wrote in his poem, glorious, um, glorious thy attributes we confess All thy attributes confess, glorious all and numberless. Are God's attributes really numberless? I think what Wesley meant was, your beauty and glory is so endless that there's always new truths to discover. Tonight, I want us to think about some of those truths that are easiest for us to see when we think of emotions or heart or affections or feelings or passions. And so let's begin this evening with that which is most common. If you think of the affections of God, the feelings of God, I think we would all think of the love of God. So open your Bibles to 1 John 4, or just look at the notes because I've copied almost all of the Bible verses into the notes tonight. The love of God. When I searched for the virtues that are listed in the Bible, this one was not mentioned the most more than all the others. Faithfulness and humility were mentioned more than love. But love must be a dominant theme when we pray, when we worship, when we draw near to God because of the way it's presented in scripture. And the passage that uses the word love the most is in what book? First John and what chapter of that book? But chapter four. So let's look at verses 10 to 16, seven verses and draw out seven teachings about the love of God. In your notes, you can see letter A. God's love is prior to ours. Nico, can you read verse 10? Uh, and this, and this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Yes, and it will say later on, we love him because he first loved us. There it is, the same thing. It was God who loved us, When we hated him, there's something glorious to his love because it came first. 
The father gets honor over the son because he is first. Well, God's love is first of all. Secondly, same verse. God's love moved him to involve himself in the most costly and intimate dealings with man's souls. Kombi and Komalusaya, the rest of 10. Sent his son. But remember, that begins with and. So what's before the and? Oh, go back to the line right above it. In this is love. Or hereby love. By this love. Hilishi hinarandu. Hilishi nirufuno. What is rufuno? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this we need to think most carefully on. <clears throat> because love actually moved God. D- do you see that? It's right there in the text. Because of this love, he sent. That means outside of this love, what would he have done? He would not have sent. It was the love that produced the sending. It was the love that moved. If anything can move God, it is his love. That ought to inspire us because God is unmovable. He is unchangeable. He is the rock. He is the mountain. He is the fortress. He is the leader and the sovereign. And yet something can move God. And it's God's love himself. He was moved by this love. But what was he moved to do? He was moved to send his son and involve his son. The costliest involvement and the most intimate involvement. It would take the very life. Letter C, or the third observation from this passage. Moving right through the passage in verse 11. God's love is so clear and controlling. You can underline that. It's both clear and it's controlling. There are some things in the Bible that are unclear or shrouded in shadow or uncertainty. But this is not one of those things. The postmodern age in which we live wants to say that all the doctrines of the Bible are uncertain. But this one is certain. It's very clear. How could it be clearer? Look, <clears throat> look at the passage. Mana uh, Kanisa. How is it clear? Oh, it's used as the basis to control all of our ethical actions. Let me just talk to you for a moment about this. Ethical actions. I have a book on my shelf entitled Five Views of the Law. One of those five views is called theonomy. In theonomy... We have all of the laws of the Old Testament as the laws for today. That's theonomy. Theonomy says the Old Testament law is today's 
law. But in that book, Five Views of the Law, there's another view. And it's called the law of love or the law of Christ. And that view says love equals today's law. So that if you were going to summarize every ethical demand, you could summarize it with love. Can anyone think of a passage of scripture that would support this second view? That is the law of Christ is the law for today. Love. Well, Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. A new commandment have I given to you that you love one another as I have loved you. A new commandment. So this view of the law, that is the law of Christ, is the law for today. This view would say love summarizes the whole law. And that's what we find in 1 John 4 verse 11. By the way, this view, that is the law of Christ, is very similar to new covenant theology. This theonomy would be covenant theology. And then the law of Christ view would be new covenant theology and some, (laughs) excuse me, and some forms of dispensationalism. Let me be fair and put that on the board too. So when we ask ourselves, what kind of laws should we obey? One answer is theonomy, or the Old Testament equals today's law. The law for today is the Old Testament. Another view would be the law of Christ, or love equals today's law. Now, which one do we see in 1 John 4.11? Look, look there in the notes. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also... What's the word after also? We have this ethical binding. Why? Oh, because God loved us. That is, the love of God has placed an ethical bond. It has tied us up. And what has it tied us to do? To love one another. So the love of God is so great that it actually controls It's so clear that it can be the basis for an ethical system. Look at letter D, number four. God's love powerfully changes us so that when it is in our hearts, it compels us to love in the same way. Wow, this love almost sounds personal. I mean that his love is so powerful that when it comes into the heart... It actually equals an abiding of God in us. Is that confusing? Let's see it right in the text. Um, Papa Junior, come with me, Messiah, verse 12. It's the 
no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. Look at the second half. If we love one another, that is proof that who is abiding in us? God is in us, and what else is in us? His love, verse 12. But skip down to the next line and look at 1 John 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us what? His spirit. In verse 13, he gives us his spirit. But what is in us in verse 12? In verse 12, God is in us. In verse 12, his love is in us. In verse 13, what or who is in us? The Spirit. That was the argument used by Jonathan Edwards to say, the Spirit of God is the love of God. In Jonathan Edwards' essay on the Trinity, he argues that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is, not has, is the love of God. He goes further. In fact, open your Bibles to 1 John. This is not in the notes. Open your Bibles to 1 John. Not only is the Holy Spirit love, but he's more than that. Look at 1 John chapter 5. And verse. Where is the verse that says the spirit is the truth? Yeah, that's the verse. I'm sorry. I looked right over it. Verse 6. First John 5 verse 6. Because the spirit is what? Yes, and Edwards argues the Holy Spirit is the love. He is the truth. And further, he is the beauty. He gets that from Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 34. Now, amazingly, what that would mean is that we have the Holy Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity, who is equal to God's love and God's truth and God's beauty. But if you will remember Jesus Christ, he is called the word. Jesus is the word. And he goes on to say, I am the way and the truth. So Jesus would be the truth and Jesus would be the word. It's it's remarkable how the Bible often compares what we think of as impersonal attributes to God himself. We are often confused. My daughter even came to me, I think it was this week, maybe it was last week, and said, Dad, what does it mean when the Bible says Jesus is the Word? 
How can Jesus be a word? Now, that's a good question, but it underscores the point I'm making here. The Holy Spirit is compared to the love of God in verses 11 and 12. And then go to the very next chapter, and it's explicitly said that the Holy Spirit is the truth. And I believe it's Psalm 34, where Edwards argues the Holy Spirit is the beauty of God. My point behind that is, look down in the notes again on letter E. The love that is from God and dwells in us and works in our hearts so that we love others is none other than the Holy Spirit. This love is somehow gloriously alive. Have you ever thanked God for giving you a living love? That can't be, right? Ranzu Arhani. But this Ranzu Rahanya. How can that be? Rufuno can be the name of a person, but Rufuno Asichiri, Auchiri. But this Rufuno Hukotira, this love does live. Somehow this love is alive. It dwells in us and it motivates us to do personal things. Look in verse 11. If God loved us, we ought also to love one another. I'm sorry, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love other, love one another, God abides in us. It's the love that God has abiding in us that is pushing us outward to love others. How can you be pushed to do a personal action without a person? How can you be compelled over time to live and think and move and have affections without some kind of personal movement behind that? Of course, everyone agrees that it is God, but it was Edward's argument in his essay on the Trinity that made me say what I've just said. So if you are listening to this and you say, I don't understand how the Holy Spirit can be love or the Holy Spirit can be truth or can be beauty. First of all, my answer would be look in in the gospel of John when Jesus is called the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is called abstract words. And secondly, Notice 1 John 4, and thirdly, Jonathan Edwards thought so as well. Letter E. This love that is from God and dwells in us and works in our hearts is none other than the Holy Spirit. Letter F. God loves the whole world. Look at verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of what group? If you have, since you have your Bibles open to 1 John, go back to chapter 2 and verse 2. If you are reading 1 John, let me encourage you to mark down the key words of 1 John. One of those key words is Jesus. One of those key words is no. One of those key words is sin. You want to say love, right? I don't think love is one of the key words in 1 John. It's only found in, verses, in chapters 3 and 4. You could say it if you want, but it's not spread out through the whole epistle. Same thing with light. 
Some people say, First John is the epistle of light, but light is only found at the beginning of the book. It's not found throughout. Same thing with love. Love is found in three and four, but it's not found throughout the whole book. But Jesus and no and sin are found throughout the whole book. And there's another word that is found throughout the whole book. World. Whatever Jesus is saying, whatever John is saying, he's writing a lot about the world. What I did in my Bible was I circled every reference to Jesus with a red pen. And then I underlined no with what color pen here? With a blue pen. And sin, I underlined with a brown pen. And world, I put a circle around with a green pen. So that whenever I'm looking, I can see immediately these words. World is found all the way through 1 John. Look in chapter 2 and verse 2. Who is the world? 1 John 2 verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who are the two groups in 1 John 2 verse 2? Us and world. Do we all see that? Us. That's one group. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only. Those are the two us's. Our, ours. But then it's not only for us. He died not only for us, but there's something happening for who? For the world. John 17 Verse 22 says, I gave them my glory so that the world might know that you sent me. Did you follow that? Jesus gives his glory to Christians so that the world would know Jesus is the, is the king of all kings. That is, when Jesus died on the cross, he was doing something for the world. Who is the world in verse 2? It's everyone who ever lived. It's all the goats. Now take that, that world right there. And just to make it a little more complicated, now go to verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. And tell me, who is the world here in verse 15? Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. Do not love the world, but wait, in 1 John 2, 2, doesn't he love the world? In chapter 2, verse 2? In 2, verse 2, God loves the world. In 2, verse 15, he tells us not to love the world. Who is the world? Caleb. I think the world means everything that is opposed to God. Everything that's opposed to God, which means in one verse, the world can emphasize the people that are opposed to God. That's verse two. But in verse 15, it's the system those people made. 
Do not love the world means do not love the system that those goats made. 1 John 2 verse 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and also for the goats themselves in some way. There, there must be a way in which his death was on behalf of those goats. And how, how can that be? I just told you from John 17 verses 22 and 23. When Jesus died on the cross, he was doing it so that the world would know and believe and see his glory in his sheep. Going back to our notes on page 63. Look at letter F. God loves the entire world. He does have some kind of love, both for sheep and for goats, for the elect and the non-elect. He has some kind of glorious love for his children and his enemies. I read a fascinating book today, or was reading a fascinating book, by Archbishop Usher. This was an Anglican who lived in the 1600s. And this man wrote a series of questions and answers. And that's this book, The Body of Divinity. In this fascinating book, it's a systematic theology, but each section is very short. I mean, two lines long. Let me give you an example. Uh, Here's an example um, from what I was reading today on the, the... Attributes of God. What is the love of God? So that's one question, and here's the answer. It is an essential property whereby he loves himself above all and others for himself. Five Bible verses. What do you learn from this? Answer, that we should love him dearly and love other things only for him. Next question. If we would better understand the love of God, please tell us what is love in ourselves. It's just a fun way to write. And each each answer is about two lines long or three lines long. There have got to be thousands of questions in this book, just like that. And in this book, on the love of God, just today... He argues very clearly that he loves both the non-elect and the elect. For example, does God love all men alike? Answer, no. For he loves his elect better than the reprobate. The elect he calls by his spirit in their hearts. But the reprobate he only calls by the outward voice of the gospel. And on and on and on. But look at the very next line. How then does he love his elect in different ways? Did you ever think of that? Does God love the elect in different ways? He says, yes, listen to this. Here it is. Amongst the elect themselves, some are wicked and not yet called. As was Paul the Apostle before his conversion. Yet he was loved even then. But the rest of the elect are made holy by faith in Christ as Paul was 
after his conversion. And these he loves with a different and greater measure of love than the former. Wait a minute. Is that true that God loves his own elect more after they're saved than before? He puts a cross reference. Well, he wants to have the Bible, right? Is that in the Bible? Quote, I love those who love me. Close quote. Proverbs 8, verse 17. So he says, true or false, Paul the Apostle did not love God before he was saved. True or false? True. Before Paul the Apostle is saved, he did not love God. Did God love Paul before Paul loved him? Oh, yes. God loved Paul when Paul was a wicked killer. But did Paul love God? No. Then when he's converted, what happens in Paul's heart? He begins to love God. So according to Proverbs 8 verse 17, I love those who love me. God's love intensified and grew toward the Apostle Paul after his conversion as compared with before his conversion. When I read this today, I had to close it and just pray and thank God. I've never thought of that before. And who but a Puritan would go to Proverbs 8 to get the cross-reference for that? I feel like we don't even read our Bibles. By the way, he's asked a question later on. Later on in this, a few pages later, he's asked the question, is this doctrine of the Trinity taught in the Old Testament? He says, yes. Guess what cross-reference he uses? Haggai 2 verse 5. I opened up my Bible and I thought, this is shameful that I don't even know. I don't know anything about this verse. And sure enough, the verse says, Jehovah spoke his word in a covenant by his spirit. Jehovah spoke his word by his spirit. Is that not the three members of the Trinity? These men knew their Bibles. And how exciting it was for me to find some of those things. Well, look down in letter G. Love is so centrally connected to God's saving purposes that laying hold of his divine love by faith is another way to speak of being saved. Wait, did you get confused with that? What I mean is that it's so important to love God's love and to see God's love. It is so important To be filled up with God's love. That to be filled up with God's love is a synonym. It means the same thing as believing on Jesus. How do I know that? Look in the text. 1 John 4 verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. What love is this? We have come to know and have believed The love which God has for us, that's the love whereby he sent his son to die for sinners. Letter H, the glory of his love so saturates all his thoughts, affections, and actions that love can even serve as one of his names. God is love. And as Edward says, that's most clearly seen. If God himself can be love, then why do we have a problem with the Holy Spirit? being the single embodiment of that love. 
Roman numeral two, God's love flows in degrees. God loves himself first and best. <laughs> Go put him in the kennel. God loves himself first and best. The first command is to love the Lord. What's the first great commandment, Nico? No, no, no. no, no. What is the commandment that all men are given that's bigger than, greater than all other commandments? Love God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. That's the first commandment, the greatest commandment. Love God. Well, that's the greatest commandment. Does God love himself then? Does God keep the greatest commandment? Does God love himself with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength? Every duty of affection that is commanded of a Christian is commanded of God where it is possible. I say where it is possible because God cannot weep over his sins. But outside of those affections connected with repentance, all other affections that are commanded of Christians are chiefly seen in who? God. So question, are we commanded to hate sin? Yes. But Hebrews 1, verse 8, you have loved righteousness and hated evil. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God hates sin more than we hate sin. Or rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4. Does God rejoice? Oh, yes. Zephaniah 2. He will sing over his people. Have you ever thought of that? That God sings over you? What might that song sound like? I will hear it someday. Uh, Look at the syllogisms here. Proposition one, it is a duty to love most what is most lovely. True or false? We should love the most the thing that's the most lovely. That's true. If something is really beautiful, you should look at it and think to yourself, that is the most beautiful. You should never look at what is the most beautiful and say of that thing, oh, that's nothing or that's ugly. You should look at beautiful things and say about those beautiful things, that's beautiful. Well, number two, God is most lovely. Can anyone deny that? One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. The Lord is beautiful. Conclusion. Therefore, it is a duty to love God the most. True or false? It is a duty to love God the most because of his beauty. Yes. Now, syllogism number two. Neglecting to love God the most is the essence of idolatry. Let's say you didn't love God the most. You would have to love something else. If you didn't love God, what are some things in the world that people love the most? Give them out. What what do people love? Money. Money. What else? 
Well, money kind of takes it all, doesn't it? <laughs> Success, money, a family, a girl, themselves, food. As soon as you love something else as if it were the greatest and highest of beauties, you have begun on what sin? Idolatry. You have made an idol of that food or money or success. But proposition number two, God does not commit what sin? God will never commit the sin of idolatry, but it is idolatry to neglect to love God. Therefore, God does not neglect to love himself the most. This is the whole message of the Bible. All men must honor God. They must love God. So God's love flows in degrees. And the first and greatest thing that God loves is himself. He loves himself more than any other thing. But what does he love next? Again, Usher helped me here. Usher says there is a a cascade of differing loves God has. For example, God loves all of his creatures because he made them and they display his wisdom. But within his creatures, he loves some creatures more than other creatures. Can you think of what creatures God loves more than other creatures? Man, yes. Which is why it's not a sin to kill a chicken. In fact, it honors God to kill a chicken. But it is a sin to kill a man. It's a good thing to kill a chicken and put salt on it. It's a bad thing to kill a man. Why? Because God has a unique love for a part of his creation. Or God loves all men. But within that group of men... He loves most those who are sealed by his spirit. Or God loves all those whom he's chosen, but he loves most those who love him most. And there's Proverbs 8, 17. Thank you, Archbishop Usher. I think we should read this for the book group. It's so simple, short little statements. And and you're going to find everyone, you'll say, I thought I knew that, but he said it so clearly. Number three, God loves his son greater than anyone has ever loved anything. Letter A, he had greater love for his son than you have for yours because both he and his son were infinitely glorious. You might love your son, but you don't love your son infinitely without end. His, his glory has a beginning and it has an end. It began on his birthday and it will end somewhere, but it has an end. You say, well, I love my child. That's great. I'm glad you love your child. I love my children too. But my love has a beginning and an end because their beauty has a beginning and an end. But when the father looked at his son, his son had glory that had no beginning and no nothing. It was infinite. Let her be. The father loved his son more than you love yours because sin never interrupted their relationship. Sin has interrupted my relationship with my boys. I would love them more if they sinned less. And they would love me more if I sinned less. 
But what would happen with a perfect father and a perfect son whose beauty is infinite? What kind of love would that be? But look at number three. The father loved the son still further than you love your children because he loved his son with infinite energy. What mother has not reached seven o'clock at night and thought, I can't wait till the kids go to bed? Why do you think that? Because noneta azone. Yes, much. You say, I can't take it. My energy began at six o'clock or five or four. And it's now past. My energy is out. I can't do anymore. I'm so tired. But can you imagine if your energy was like the Victoria Falls? Night and day, never taking a holiday, never taking a break, pouring over an untold amount of energy. What we would think of as unending, but it does have an end. It's only a poor picture to look at Victoria Falls. Because God's love really was, his energy was infinite. So he could pour out, not Victoria Falls, but Victoria to Falls times two, or four, or ten, or a hundred, or a million. Take a billion Victoria Falls, and it's only a drop of a bucket of the kind of energy that the Father poured out on the Son. I remember the day I got married, and I thought, I am going to have such a great time with my wife. This is wonderful. But soon, we both got tired. And we had to sleep. And soon we both became accustomed to one another. And then we had to go to work and we had to, we were distracted. That's life. You may say you love her and maybe you do with all the strength you have. But either way, even if you loved your wife with all the strength you have, it's going to run out. And there's going to be a time, in fact, even before we were married, when I was living here and my wife was in the U.S. finishing her degree... I can remember a few times talking to her on the phone and then suddenly I heard the phone hang up and I realized I had fallen asleep on my fiance before I married her. And, oh no, what is this? So I call her back and say, oh, sorry. She says, well, what was that for? Oh, I just got so sleepy. My love was so weak. It ran out, and this is even before we're married. But God has infinite energy, so he loves his son more than you love yours. God never had any sin that interrupted his relationship, and his son was infinitely beautiful. So imagine the kind of love that would flow from father to son in that scenario. And then, and then, you've got to catch this. In John 17, I believe it's verse 24, isn't it? That the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them. Yes, John 17, 26. That the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them. This is amazing. The infinitely, the love inspired by infinite beauty and the love uninterrupted by any sin and the love that flows from eternal energy. That kind of love can be on me? 
I think that's why John records no man can see God and live. How could we even endure God giving infinite energy and infinite resources to pour down on us if we were not strengthened by his own infinite spirit, we couldn't even take his love. This is pictured in C.S. Lewis's novel, The uh, Paralandra, where at the end of that book, two angels meet a man. And the two angels are surprised because they weren't expecting to see this man. And when they see him, they begin to talk. And then they say, be careful if you, if you touch him without being very careful, you might kill him. That is the angels speaking to the man. In, in that same series, the book before it, Out of the Silent Planet, the hero sees an angel, but he can only see this slightest flicker of light. He has to focus his eyes and stare and strain. And if the, light, if the lighting is just right, he sees something like a shadow, something like a, a flicker. And he says, is that, is, that, is that the angel? And he says, I can't see you. And the angel answers him, I can barely see you. In my world, you're not very real. Can you imagine that? Now, angels are just created spirits. What about the one eternal uncreated spirit with infinite energy and no sin pouring out that kind of love on us, it would be too much for us. It would overwhelm us. Imagine when Moses went up into the mountain, when he came down, his face was shining. And I don't think we have a right conception of this. The people said, cover your face. Oh, we can't look on you. Why did they say that? Because they were surprised that a man was bright. No, they said that because something in his reflection hurt them. A man in the presence of God merely reflecting the the offshoots of Shekinah glory is too great for men to see. Cover your face. We can't look at you. We can't come near you. And they even said, you go speak to God for us because if he speaks to us, we will die. That is, if God comes and in love just talks to us, we will die after we've seen the glory reflected in the face of Moses. And that was a loving, kind, compassionate, merciful demonstration of God. This is God's great love that he will pour out in unending and overwhelming power. Such as I saw today. Was it today? Recently, when I brought Marius back in the wheelchair and I put him back in his bed I picked him out of the wheelchair, and as I was picking him up, he has that little dog, Geppetto. You seen that little dog? It runs and jumps everywhere. And you pick up that man, and as I put him back in the bed, the dog jumped all over him, and Marius can't balance very well until he's seated for about two minutes. You have to hold him and steady him. And I took my hands off too quickly, and the little dog almost knocked him over. Whoa, 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 I'm sorry. We have to catch you. That's the love of a little dog that was going to knock him over. What if the dog was as large as the house? What if the dog was as large as the town? What if the dog was as large as the universe? 
When God comes with his glory and his wonder and his kindness, he has to give it in the smallest little drops. But someday we will see him as he is because his spirit will be in us, allowing us to receive of his love. And at that time, his love will be all sufficient and we'll want nothing more and we'll be satisfied only with this love. Give me more of this love and let me see more and think more of this love. Is it any surprise that Jonathan Edwards in his 70 resolutions wrote, resolved any time that I find something in me that causes me in the least to doubt the love of God, immediately to do whatever I can to overthrow that doubt. Jonathan Edwards realized even at 19 years old, I must have my heart constantly focused on the great love of God for me. God loves his people. Look at Roman numeral four. Oh my. God loves his people. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not entered into the heart of man. All this God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. He calls his people from the dead, Galatians 1.15. He gives them faith, John 6, verse 65. He unites these sinners to his son, Ephesians 1.13. He places his spirit inside them, Romans 8, verse 9. He promises to work all things together for their good so that they will arrive without fail in eternal glory, 1 Corinthians 3.21. He's doing all these things for us. And the problem is, each one of those things I listed, if we could get into eternity, we would look back and place the price tag on those things at greater than the price tag for which Elon Musk just purchased Twitter. 43 billion US dollars, that's a lot. No, it's nothing. If you could go a moment without air, what would you pay to get it back? Elon Musk would pay more than $43 billion if suddenly the air was gone and he had to pay up to get air. And you would too. You would pay anything just to get the air back. If it was off for 30 seconds, imagine 30 seconds without air, what would you pay to get it? Imagine two days, all the water in the world turned to blood. What would you pay to get the water back? Imagine two days... No women in the world. None. What would you pay to get women back? Women, no men in the world. What would you pay? I know there's jokes. Ha-ha. No, this is not the time for jokes. Think about what it would be like to have no men in the world. No women in the world. No metal. What would it be like to have no friction? Friction is that force that causes screws and nails to hold. Friction is the force that causes your brakes to work, which allows your feet to stop. Imagine there was no friction. Everything slid. Well, you wouldn't need oil in your engine. But what you wouldn't need cars because they couldn't stop on the road. Once they started, they would never stop. Friction stops things. And on and on. My point is, if we could at once lose one of the many blessings that we go day by day without even noticing we have... We would pay anything to get those blessings back. Imagine a moment without one of these blessings of love that God gives us. We would pay anything to get it. And unbelievers, one moment inside hell, 
would be very glad to come back to earth and pay a lifetime of devotion. All that they had would they give for another chance. Uh, Page 64, Roman numeral 5, God's love is exalted and glorified when all the other biblical truths are taught. What I mean by that is the love of God grows in its glory and we, or I'm sorry, the love of God grows in the glory that we perceive. Its glory was there all the time, but we could not see it. We can see it more when we understand other doctrines, like the doctrine of the cross. We understand the love of God when we see the cross or total depravity. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved what? Study the doctrine of the world right through the book of John. Jesus says, the world hates me. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The world was entirely opposed to Jesus. That makes us understand the love of God. The love of God came right at enemies and rebels and loved them anyway. Look at the doctrine of common grace. Let her see. If you think about common grace, that's another doctrine that if you study that doctrine, you understand the love of God. This is what I told you some time ago. Do you remember this? When we talked about the simplicity of God. You cannot separate any of the of the attributes of God so that God's love if it was represented by this line it's intersected by the cross and it's intersected by common grace and it's intersected by total depravity that is every truth touches the love of God and every time you see another truth in the Bible you learn more about the love of God this is again why Calvin put on the first page of the Institutes What should we start with? Should we start with God or should we start with man? Either way, you cannot understand man unless you understand that God made man. And you cannot understand God unless you see I am a sinner and it is my sin that causes me to misunderstand God. That is, every doctrine connects. So even in these courses, and Bavink has a lengthy section on this. Maybe it's too long. Bavink has a section saying, where should we start when we study God? What should we study? Should we start with this or with this or with this? Because no matter where you start, you haven't started at the beginning. Because there is no beginning. Well, we're going to start by studying the Trinity. Why would you think the Trinity is the beginning? And that's the beauty again of the Bible. The Bible never tries to tell us all there is about God. The Bible tells us truths about God. We will see that when we get to heaven, we never ate the whole meal. We just had little pieces of delicious food. And so the love of God is like that. The more we understand the second coming, the more we understand his love because he is coming back because he loves his people, Luke 18, 7 and 8, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, which does not refer to 70 AD. 
Look down uh, here at the questions that arise from this affection. Just briefly, let me deal with a handful of questions here. I don't know, seven, eight or so. Does God love all men? Answer, yes, God does love all men, but he does not love them all in the same way. 1 Timothy 2. Pray for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, who would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all men to be saved. But 1 Timothy 4.10, the same book, two chapters later. He is the savior of all men, but especially the ones who believe. So God loves all men, but in different ways. Well, then how does God's love differ? He loves his own people with a love that will raise them from the dead and give them the Holy Spirit. Question number three. Is that fair? Answer, of course not. Only a goat would talk about fairness. A sheep doesn't want what's fair. Because a sheep understands fairness means everyone goes to hell. I don't want fair. Please, please, let's never use that word. I don't want that word. I want mercy. I want grace. That's what I want. Number four. Question number four. Does God hate some men since God hated Esau? What about love? Does God love Esau or hate him? Answer. God hates all sinners and is angry with them. Psalm 5 verse 5. Psalm 7 verse 11. Question number five then. How can God love and hate sinners at the same time? Answer. His heart is able to despise them in their sin and yet yearn for their conversion and repentance at the same time so that he can pour out kindness on the ones that he both loves and hates at the same time. And if you say, I can't understand that, that's why he is God and you are not. He can do these things. He's able to love and hate. But at the same time, remember that's communicable, incommunicable, shared, unshared. There's some things God can do that you can't, but you're like that. Can't you do that? Have you ever been very angry with your child? I should look at the parents here. (laughs) Have you ever been very angry with your child? But even then you still loved them, didn't you? You didn't want to kill them. You only said you did. Number six, does God love some Christians more than others? Answer, God unites all the elect to Christ and gives them all the eternal graces of the Holy Spirit. Yet some receive greater grace while here on earth. So I think that we can say, therefore, that this extra grace is greater love. First Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, um, but the grace of God was more in me so that I labored more abundantly than all of them. So if Paul can say, God gave me more grace than he gave to them, I think if God gives you more grace, there's a connection with love as well. Number seven, how can a loving God send men to hell? You know, we're going to deal with that just now. So let's pass over those. How can Christians use this this affection? What can we do with it? Well, we can think much on this love so that it might create true humility. Think much of the love of God. Ponder it. Pray about it. 
That was last month's prayer. Did you focus on that last month when we were praying as churches from Philippians 1? I prayed for that almost each day. And I found myself more and more delighted in the love of God. Number two, Christian uses, applications. Give to God a greater portion of your wealth. When you think about the love of God, we should open up our bank accounts and our wallets. We should say, I wish I could give more. Oh, I'm just so sad that the money's gone. It gives me so much happiness to give more money. Some of us have felt that way. When we get to the end of a good night's sleep, we wake up and it's 5.30 in June and it's so cold. What about 30 more minutes? No, I got to get up. Do you, do you feel that way? You know, does anyone relate to that feeling? Why don't we feel that way with our offerings of money? Oh, I gave a thousand. Oh, I wish I had 500 more. Letter C, live your life as if it were completely devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not settle for a loose kind of cultural Christianity. Be sure that your Christianity is modeled after the book of Acts. Letter D, or the fourth application, devise some means for communicating this love to others so that they too may share the love of God. I've told you many times, when I first came to Africa, I came here because I was motivated by the the terror of hell. But over the last 18 years, my heart has been growing. I am so enamored with the love of God that I can say, I want more days in the week to preach in more villages. And Lord willing, when I come back in September, I'm going to try to put a different church or a different village on four days, at least four days of the week, so that I can try to plant more churches and more villages because So many people need to know about the love of God and I would be happier. It would make me happy if more people saw what I see. You're starting to see it. And the more I see you see the love of God, it's it's a double bonus for me. I don't want paychecks. I don't want big buckies. I just want more people to see and enjoy the love of God. And if that could happen in more villages among more tsongas, That would be almost heaven. It'd be too much for me to bear almost. Holy Spirit, give me strength to not only save those people, but then be able to endure the joy and happiness of seeing them come to Christ. The fifth application. Reject every form of religion that tends to make you love the gift more than the giver. 1 Peter 1 verses 7 and 8. Throw the prosperity gospel on the ground, spit on it, and step on it. Take every chance you can to correct and draw and love and pray and help those who are bound with that demonic religion. Sixth application. Examine yourself to see if you take pleasure in his love for you. Do you really enjoy the love of God for you? 2 Corinthians 13.5 It is very common that men slip From their interest in the love of God, so take special care for your own soul. How encouraged I was this week when one of the young men texted Caleb and then me and said, I still love the Lord. Please pray for me. And what made that special was that very morning I had prayed for that young man that he would love the Lord. God answers our prayers and he puts that desire in our hearts. Number seven, letter G. 
Seventh application, overlook irritations, be hard to offend, don't be bothered quickly. Be the kind of Christian that just smiles and laughs and loves. Be self-deprecating. Don't be easily bothered because you just love the brothers the way God loved you, right? 1 John 3, 14 through 16. The way we'll know that the love of God is in us is when we love the brothers. And the last one, letter H, number eight, eighth application Never overlook your own sin. Be skeptical of your own goodness so that real love for God will cause you to be more holy. I feel like in this one attribute of God, we've got basically the entire Trinity. We saw already the doctrine of the Trinity in the love of God. We saw practically every... I just gave an application on church planting and missions, on money and finances, all from the love of God. May God give us a greater love for his love. Are there any questions?